Our Bible readings then from the Old Testament and the New Testament, reading first in the book of Job and chapter 9. This morning we'll be thinking of Jesus coming to the disciples in the storm in Mark chapter 6. And there is a reference, it seemed, to the 11th verse in the book of Job about God passing by Job and Job not understanding this mysterious and great God as he suffers deeply in his life. So Job chapter 9, we read the whole of this chapter, and then we read in Mark's Gospel and chapter 6. And let us hear in God's word. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvellous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away who can turn him back. Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the night, in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. No, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on, on us both. 
Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Then in Mark's Gospel and in chapter 6, Mark chapter 6. Read from verse 30 to verse 52. Mark 6 from verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. If you have a Bible today, we turn to Mark's Gospel in chapter 6, from verse 45 to 52. And we're thinking today of Christian discipleship and trials Abel was envied by Cain. Joseph was sold into Egypt by his brothers. 
David was pursued by Saul in the wilderness of Judea. Jeremiah was let down into a cistern. Daniel was thrown to the lions. Stephen was stoned. Paul was persecuted in the city of Thessalonica. The ten cycles of persecution of Christians by the Romans occurred until Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. The bodies of John Wycliffe and John Huss were burned. Covenanters in Scotland and Ireland were pursued in the 17th century. Christian churches have been burned to the ground in India this year. And pastors are being imprisoned in Iran. This potted history of persecution of the church reminds us, assures us, and warns us that the disciples of Jesus will suffer and undergo trials in this world. And it's this aspect of discipleship that's illustrated for us in this well-loved story here in Mark chapter 6. The veracity of this story has been challenged, as much of the Bible has, by liberal scholars. Some scholars claim that Jesus walking on the water was an optical illusion. Other Bible scholars claim that Jesus walked on a sandbar wading through the surf near the hidden shore. They compare Jesus in this story to Xerxes, the Persian crossing the Hellespont in 480 BC on a floating bridge 1,400 yards long, or to Alexander the Great's siege of Tyre by means of a causeway in 332 BC. Both these military leaders had solid footing in the sea and only appeared to be walking on it. And while we reject this comparison and explanation by liberal scholars of this miracle, we take one point from their comparison, and it is this. Those leaders were great and to be admired. But this miracle demonstrates that Jesus is greater and to be worshipped and trusted by us. They appeared to be God-like, but he is God. This miracle of calming the storm is different from the miracle of calming the storm in chapter 4 of Mark. The two miracles are similar but distinct. Storms were common on the Lake of Galilee then and still are. So it's not unusual that such a miracle happened more than once to the disciples of Jesus who frequently traveled by boat across the Lake of Galilee. But this event was a harder test for the disciples than the event recorded in chapter 4. This test is a step up, a greater challenge, an advanced level. In the last storm on the lake, Jesus was with the disciples. This time, they're on their own. And perhaps there is a principle here for us. Our current personal or congregational trial is of the nature the weight, the duration, and the type that is designed specifically for us at our particular stage. As we grow as a Christian, perhaps the intensity of our trials will also grow. At an early stage in the history of the early church, this 
miracle was interpreted as a pledge of Christ's help to his people. The story provided early Christian martyrs with the assurance of Jesus' nearness to all who believe and obey him. Pictures of a ship in a storm have been discovered by archaeologists in early Christian sites and sermons by the early church fathers on this passage are preserved. This is a legitimate application of this miracle. And we today also want to apply this miracle to our personal trials and to your particular challenge as a congregation which you're entering in this time of vacancy. Firstly, we learn from this passage that our trials are not pointless. Read with me again verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat. He commands them to go to the other side of the Lake of Galilee. There is an urgency, a force, an insistence, a compulsion detectable in the text in Jesus sending the disciples away. The word made means compelled. Jesus packs off the disciples from the crowd. He wants rid of them so that he can dismiss the crowds by himself. But why? The disciples of Jesus at this point are susceptible to the messianic contagion affecting the crowd. The idea seems to be that the disciples were reluctant to leave the scene because they were being sucked in by the hype of the multitude. Jesus had to remove them from the scene to allow him to persuade the crowd to disperse peaceably and thus avert a revolutionary groundswell. The 5,000 men mentioned in chapter 6 verse 44 appear to have come together into the wilderness with an insurrectionary aim. What is hinted at here in Mark is made explicit in John's gospel. He states in chapter 6, 14, they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king. William Lane comments, the tension of messianic excitement was dangerously in the air after the meal in the desert. The hurried dismissal of the disciples prevented them from adding fuel to the fire by revealing to the people the miraculous character of the evening meal. The main point that we are making here is that the disciples did not want to go on this journey. But Jesus sent them on this journey. They were following his orders in crossing the lake. They were not doing their own thing. They were not being disobedient when this trial came. This was Jesus' direction. Jesus sends the disciples across the north part of the lake and dismisses the crowd. 
He refused to be the warrior Messiah of their popular expectations. He separated himself from the threat inherent in irresponsible excitement. Taking leave of them in verse 46 is the disciples. Jesus had a reason for dismissing them. He's preserving them from the false ideas about him which the crowd had adopted. This direction to cross the lake was loving. It was kind. It was wise. The storm in the sea, though terrifying, was far less of a problem for the disciples than if they had joined the band of insurrectionists. Our trials are not pointless. Sometimes a gangrenous foot is removed to save the rest of the person's body. We believe that in some cases the life of a baby can be sacrificed to save the life of a mother. So here in Mark, Jesus is preserving the disciples by sending them on this journey. Seated at the right hand of God, Christ controls our trials. His control of our trials means that there is a reason for each one of them. There are no pointless trials in our lives. His love for us is so great that he will not allow his children to shed a needless tear. It's therefore a question that we ask in our trial as Job asked, what am I being taught in this trial? You remember Jacob shouting in agony, all these things are against me. Joseph was missing. Benjamin's sack of grain contained the silver cup of Joseph. The agony of losing his beloved sons was excruciating for the old man. But Jacob was wrong in his interpretation of these trials in his lives. All those things were actually for him. Benjamin would bring him to Egypt and Joseph would preserve him and his family in Egypt. For every disciple of Jesus, for every believing child, teenager, adult, and congregation of Jesus, there is a purpose for every challenge, for every trial that comes to us. James in his letter writes, The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect. Our personal or congregational trial may be to humble us as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. Our trial may be to refine us as Peter teaches us. Our trial may be to prevent us from some wrong theological convictions as here in Mark 6 or bad moral practice as in Genesis 20. But let us all be assured that whether we know the reason for our disappointments or not, there are no pointless trials in the life of the disciples of Jesus. Jesus always has a reason. Secondly, our trials 
are not loveless. Read with me again verses 46 to 48. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Though Jesus sent the disciples away, he continued to love them and to think of them. The second point is advancing the first, isn't it? This is more than the logical reason for our trials. Here's the affection of Christ for his disciples in trial. And our trials are not experienced without the love of Jesus. For nothing can separate us from his love. Isn't that right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, sword, the Bible says. And we can add congregational vacancy. And this is evidenced in this passage in two ways. Firstly, his praying for them in verse 46. He went up on the mountain to pray. What was it that Jesus was praying for on this mountain? Mark records Jesus praying only three times in his gospel. 135, 1435 and here in 645. Each of these prayers is at night and in a lonely place. Each occasion finds the disciples removed from him and failing to understand his mission. On each occasion, Jesus faces a formative decision or crisis in his life. Thus we're to understand that in this prayer, following the feeding of the 5,000 men in the desert, Jesus reaffirms in this prayer his calling to express his divine sonship as a servant rather than as a freedom fighter. William Lane comments, refusing the acclaim of the multitude, he gave himself to a long period of solitude in order to affirm his obedience to his father. But this prayer was not just about himself. It was also for his disciples. They were his flock and he cared for them. He was praying for their spiritual need to truly understand his mission. He was praying for their emotional need as they faced the storm on the lake with panic and with fear. He was praying for their physical need as they toiled at the oars. Jesus continued to love these men and care for them, even though he had sent them away. And he evidenced that love by praying for them. Sending them away did not indicate a lack of love for them, but rather his great love for them. And secondly, in seeing them, verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully. Jesus saw from the mountain top that the wind was against them and causing them pain. 
This was not a storm like the one in chapter 4, but this was a strong headwind that demanded extreme physical effort to make any progress in. His look here is one of compassion and love and pity for these men, like his look recorded in verse 34 when he looked on the great crowd with compassion. Even in poor conditions, the Lake of Galilee could be crossed in six to eight hours. But the disciples are struggling to sail in the face of a strong wind blowing against them here. They seem to be out in this lake from six o'clock the previous evening, and now it's between three and six the next day, the next morning. The well-known Shirkaya wind, literally shark, which usually starts in the evening and causes apprehension among experienced fishermen is likely the wind being referred to here. Painfully, in verse 48, literally means torment. The word was used of the agonies of the demon possessed in 5 verse 7, but can refer to dire straits in other forms. Is even used of the sufferings of hell in Revelation 14, verse 10. Some people describe their terrible experience as a living hell. That's how Dr. Annie Chapman described conditions in Moriah on the Greek island of Lesbos, the migrant holding facility. Originally constructed for 3,000 people, it now houses 20,000 people, a place of suffering, Violence, deprivation, and despair. I used to resent such language and claim hell is far worse than anything we will experience on this earth. But this passage seems to warrant it. So can you imagine the agonies of these men here? The physical exhaustion of rowing for 10 hours, much of it in a storm. The mental agony of remembering that Jesus had sent them on this trip, the emotional pain of recalling that in the last storm he was with them, but in this storm he's not here. But Jesus saw them suffering. He noticed them. He loved them. The strongest plank in the argument of atheists For there not being a God is the presence of suffering in this world. God is all-powerful, the argument goes, and all good. Then why does he allow suffering in our world? Does our suffering not mean that he is either not all-powerful or not all-loving? The war in Ukraine, the trouble in Palestine, the death of the 15-year-old girl in Croydon, the problems in my life, my family, where is God? This passage asserts that he loves, that he sees, that he prays for his people in trial and suffering. Theologians over the centuries have used this passage to give us insights into the current work of Jesus in heaven. He is distant from us now, but he is praying for us. His disciples and congregations are in all kinds of trials on earth. But he's praying for us. Romans 8 asserts that Jesus makes intercession for us at the right hand of God. 
Sometimes disciples, to their own great disappointment, find prayer difficult in their suffering. Sometimes disciples do not know what they should pray for in our trials. For the disciples in the boat on the lake, Galilee prayer would have been hard. All hands were to the pump. Their minds and hearts were all over the place. But Jesus was praying for them. Having been in the boat in a storm with them before, he knew their condition exactly. And having been tempted in all points like as we are, he knows our needs exactly. Our trials are not loveless. And can we in some way imitate him in this? Can we also enter the sufferings of others and pray for them? I've never lost someone, a young person says. So how can I pray for someone who has? But we've all lost something precious. That pain of losing a doll or a toy car or a badminton final or a summer job will help you pray intelligently for others who have lost someone precious. No one else saw them. No one else noticed them in their trial. The crowds of thousands were heading home oblivious of the plight of these disciples. But Jesus saw them. And sometimes... You and I suffer alone. We tell no one else of the heartbreak that we experience. Or others are just not interested or they just don't notice our experience. But here is our comfort and trial. That Jesus sees us. In the Psalms, this was a great comfort to the writers, wasn't it? Psalm 139. Lord, you search me. You know me. Psalm 103, he knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. In Psalm 56, David has fled from Palestine into the land of the Philistines. And he's arrested there. And he's crying and he writes, You count my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The Lord sees him and sees us. And loves us. In our trial. And we too. Are to look beyond the end of our own nose. And see those who are suffering. And enter their suffering. And pray for them. And love them. And thirdly and lastly. Our trials are not Christless. They're not pointless. They're not loveless. And our trials are not Christless. Read with me again verses 48 to 50. About the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Our trials are not Christless. 
This third point is more than the, the logical dimension that we thought of in the first, that there's a reason for our trials. And it's more than the emotional dimension that we thought in our second point, that He loves us in our trials. Here's the personal dimension. He will not only be with us in His providential rule, with us in His thoughts, with us in His intercession at God's right hand, but He will also be with us in His person. In the fourth watch of the night, He came to the disciples on the way. Mark is using, of course, the Roman custom of dividing up the night into four parts of three hours. So this time is between 3 and 6 a.m. Like the Lord in Exodus 2. He saw the affliction of his people and came down to rescue them. So Jesus sees his people here. And as he comes, he reveals himself, his identity to them. He shows them his, his godhood, doesn't he? His divinity. This is what's been revealed here, this self-revelation of Jesus in this coming out on the water to see them. He's showing them his divinity. And he's doing it in three ways. He's walking on the water. We can't translate the phrase on the sea differently from the phrase in verse 47, on the land. The phrase cannot be translated to avoid the problem of open water sustaining a human body. And in the Old Testament, only God can walk on water. Job 9.8, who alone trampled the waves of the sea. This is a self-revelation of Jesus, plucking out an action from the Old Testament which is unique to God. And performing it here to reveal himself to the disciples and to us. His divinity is revealed also by his words in, in verse 50. It is I. The same words used by Jehovah himself in Exodus 3.14 to Moses. You remember at the burning bush. Here is Jesus. And he's walking like God. And he's talking like God. Because he is God. And then this action, this third way that he reveals his divinity, this passing by. The reason he went to the exhausted disciples was to comfort them. So why do we read in verse 48, he meant to pass by them. It's baffling for us. It implies Jesus intended to walk beyond them. One explanation is that this is how it appeared to the disciples. But there's a richer and a fuller explanation of this, again from the Old Testament. Jesus here is drawing in those special moments of divine revelation to Moses and Elijah, Exodus 33 and 1 Kings 19, where we have this phrase that God came to those men and he passed by them. Such was his glory and mystery. He passed by them, Moses and Elijah, and here is Jesus, God incarnate, and he's coming, and he's replicating this experience of Moses and Elijah, and he's passing by them. Such is the mystery and glory of his being and character. But he moves beyond that mystery. And in his love, he comes to these men. James Edwards explains, he intends to make the mysterious 
and enigmatic God of the Old Testament visible and palpable. William Lane comments, Jesus had no intention of simply passing by the disciples in a display of enigmatic glory. He walks out on the water in love to these men. He came to where they are. They misunderstand his presence. They think this is a ghost. All their culture, all their imagination has taken over the weakness of their body and of their faith. They cry out, this is a ghost. They're unbelieving in this moment of trauma and revelation. But Jesus dispels their trouble Take heart, he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Our trials are not Christless. Footprints by Mary Stevenson is a favorite poem, and rightly so. When only one set of footprints is seen in the sand, that is not when we are left by Jesus, the poem informs us and scripture informs us. But when we are lifted by him, Not when we are bereft by him, but when we are born by him. Does this Jesus of infinite power and love who's with us, with you, in this time of vacancy? He can do anything. He can calm the storm. He can walk in water. There's nothing impossible for him. He tells us and he tells you, do not be afraid. Even when things are seemingly going against us, he is present and is all sufficiency for every one of us. The end of the story is surprising, isn't it? The hardness of the disciples in verse 52 They should have got beyond the stage of instinctive astonishment to one of understanding who Jesus truly is. It should have been the loaves, Mark says in verse 52, which caused them to see Jesus in this new light. Why the loaves, you might ask? Well, perhaps there's a link to the crossing of the Red Sea and to the manna, as John 6 indicates. Here's the new Redeemer, Savior from the slavery of sin. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a Christian. And hardness of heart marks you. You're still unrepentant of your sin. You've still not believed in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Your head knows so many true things about Jesus, but your heart does not believe them. In my head yesterday, I knew Ireland would win. But in my heart, I wanted Scotland to win. There it is, it's all out there, it's all out there. And in your head, you know Jesus is the Son of God. Come in human nature for our salvation, but your heart does not yet believe him. Trust him as your Savior. Let that knowledge sink one foot down into your heart. Acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior, and then you will know his forgiveness comfort in trials and everlasting presence when all the storms of this life are over. So elders, members of Trinity Congregation, remember that in this period of vacancy, your trial 
It's not pointless. It's not loveless. And it's not Christless. Shall we join in prayer? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful part of your word. Thank you for how it's helped your people through the centuries in times of challenge and need. We pray that it will help us now, Lord. And help us in our personal circumstances to have that assurance that the pain in our heart, the disappointment, the darkness that clouds our mind, the agony, the struggle that we have, Lord, that you are with us, that you're using this in in our life and in the life of others. Help us to trust you. Help us to, to know that we are loved by you, that you see us, that you care for us, even in our weakness. And we pray for this congregation, Lord, that they will find comfort here, help here, and assurance, Lord, that just as you set the path for, for that small congregation of yours, the twelve disciples then, so you've plotted the path for this congregation, that you see them, you love them, you're with them. We pray that they will move forward, not assurance and confidence. O Lord, we pray. Now may grace, mercy and peace from God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit rest on and abide with you all. Amen.